Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I'm so glad to have you here today. Thanks so much for your time. My guest today is Jane Mattingly. She is a master's level eating disorder recovery coach and the owner and CEO of the global virtual coaching group practice, Recovery Love and Care. She's also a really good friend of my daughter, Julia's. Jane identifies as fully recovered from a lifelong eating disorder and also lives with a chronic illness and is disabled. This has inspired her to help others within their own healing journeys. Jane's coaching style is a collaborative approach where she perseveres with and advocates for each and every one of her clients. She has a passion for helping those within their recovery, especially when it comes to body image conception, chronic illness, living with disability and body betrayal, and helping others find self-compassion and body kindness. Jane's overall mission is to help those within their eating disorder recovery find success within the hostile recovery environment in which we live. Please join me in welcoming Jane. Hey, Jane, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, good. Well, let's just jump right in. Let's talk a little about the work that you do because I think it's really interesting. You are an eating disorder therapist and you created this recovery, love, and care using recovery coaches. And you work mostly with women. And But can you talk a little bit about what, you know, what ED recovery is like? Yeah, absolutely. So I myself struggled with an eating disorder. My eating disorder began when I was probably about nine years old. And it was one of those cases where it wasn't identified. I didn't fall into that mold, that textbook mold, especially in the 90s and early 2000s. Not a lot was known about eating disorders as much as we know now. I looked quote unquote normal. I was pretty high functioning. And then, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, I identified that something was up, something was wrong. And I sought help. I was living in Jackson, Wyoming at the time with my boyfriend, then husband now. And that's where I created my own outpatient team of mine. And I learned so much about the misconceptions surrounding eating disorders, body image, recovery. And I went through my own recovery. I went through it quite quickly. My motivation was really high, which is a big indicator of how quickly you can recover. And I didn't have any significant trauma too, which is also an indicator of how quick you can recover. And um, once I, you know, found recovery, I was like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to work with people. And I wasn't focused necessarily on eating disorders. I just was like, you know, I think I want to help people with mental illness. So I went to the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and I got my master's in clinical mental health counseling and graduated and worked as a therapist. And then throughout my experience, I noticed this incredible gap in treatment. There's like this higher level of care, inpatient care, and then outpatient. 
And there is not a surplus of eating disorder specialists, certified eating disorder specialists. There are far and few between. And I noticed that clients I was working with or clients that I had worked with were seeing, you know, going from 24-hour care to then going to outpatient, seeing their specialist like once every two weeks or once a month, depending on what they could afford. And that's just, you know, the average patient or client goes back to a higher level of care eight to 10 times. And I don't think that's a client problem. I think that's a systemic issue. And I think part of that is because there's just not a surplus. There's not enough people specializing in it. So I kind of looked around and Carolyn Costin is just, you know, amazing. She's a trailblazer within the eating disorder community. And she has recovery coaches where you like live with your clients. And so I kind of took that and uh, my experience and created a virtual option for recovery coaching where you can have that collaborative care and fill in that gap, um, but you're not living with them. And this was all like prior to COVID. And I'm so... I'm so lucky that I created a virtual business prior to COVID because now it's, you know, the norm, but that's kind of a little piece of my story and my why. And now I have this, you know, virtual group practice and provide trainings for coaches to be. Wow. I I didn't realize that the hospitalization and Mm re-hospitalization was so high. And I'm guessing a lot of those patients have anorexia because the medical complications are so great. And, you know, you mentioned something I think that's really interesting that, you know, folks with eating disorders can look normal. And, you know, when you mentioned nine years old, that was when I started my first diet. I remember I took before and after pictures. I don't know how I got that idea, but. Yeah, probably from a magazine or something, you know, I mean. Yeah. And there I stood, there I stood with my little tummy pooched out and, you know, there it began, but. So can you talk about the range of clients that you see? Because they probably don't all have anorexia and they're probably not all, you know, so so sick that they have to be inpatient. Correct. Yes. So it really depends on where I get my referrals from. You know, there are, there is a population of clients that I see that are kind of like dabbling with the thought of, Hey, I think there's a problem. Like they have pre, they're in that pre-contemplation contemplative stage of recovery. And I'll do an intake and I'll be like, Oh my goodness. Yes. You are very, very sick, very sick. And I will have them. um, I will help them build a team. So there's that kind of client that will come to me and I'll say, Hey, you know, I'll be your recovery coach, but you also need a therapist. We don't need an eating disorder specialized therapist. We can find another therapist and I can be the eating disorder specialist on the team. And then a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders and we'll figure out, you know, doctor, et cetera. COVID was an interesting situation still is where, you know, you can't go into offices. So you have to like figure out weights and all that kind of stuff if you need to be tracking a client's weight. So there's that kind of client who I'll help. And then there's a lot of people who, you know, are working with disordered eating, dieting, like pathological dieting, you know, like starting at the age of nine um, and thought it was normal until their lives just became incredibly consumed by the thought of their bodies and food. 
oftentimes a client comes to me not realizing they have an eating disorder. And a big part of the process is that that validation is like, hey, you do, you know, you fall into this category. And then I love working also with the population, you know, that comes from a higher level of care and needs that step down care because that's why I created this. So it really depends where the referrals come from, but it's all different types of diagnoses, anorexia, um, orthorexia, binge eating, a lot of binge eaters, um, because that's the most common in the US. And then a lot of OSFED, which is like kind of that conglomerate as well as, you know, bulimia. Wow. That sounds like it's pretty challenging at times. You mentioned something that I wanted to talk about for just a minute, and that was Mm -hmm. about building a team. So the team, I'm guessing you mentioned you collaborate with dietitians, other therapists and physicians. And why is this model so important? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. And I think it's not, it's, it's not understood necessarily when I came out and was like, Hey, I'm a recovery coach. I almost had a cringy feeling about it as a therapist because I had this understanding of coaches as like, oh, they're not really trained. They don't know what they're doing. They're charging all this money. You know, like I had this bias towards the word coach and I wanted to kind of dissect that bias that I had and reformat what a coach really meant under, you know, my eyes and under an ethical lens. So for me and all of my coaches that I train and work with, Recovery coaching means that you are a part of a team. You understand your scope of care and your scope of care is working with the here and now goal oriented, more motivation oriented. You're not healing trauma. You're not working with trauma. You are not healing mental illness. You are not working with mental illness. Obviously you're working alongside of it, but we're not healing it. That is the job of a therapist. We're working a lot on body image, grocery shopping, meeting the meal plan and navigating the meal plan that the dietitian makes up. Again, I'm not a dietitian, so I'm not going to make up a meal plan for a client. Maybe helping a client work through intuitive eating, intuitive movement. And so oftentimes if I'm like, hey, let's build a team and a therapist has never worked with a recovery coach, they're rightfully usually pretty hesitant. They're like, hmm, that seems like a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You know, are you trying to take my role? And it's collaborative. I meet with those team members usually every couple of weeks, if not weekly. And we make sure we're all on the same page, not contradicting one another and staying in our lane. And, you know, usually after like a month, the therapist is like, oh my goodness, this is amazing because it really lightens their load. You know, a therapist, usually outpatient therapist isn't a crisis center. You know, they're not meant to be emailing clients back and forth in between sessions. That's not a part of their role. So if we can fill that, it's actually just more of a cohesive recovery for everybody. And how does the physician fit into that? And what's your, what's the, I guess, reception been from the medical community? Yes, it varies. But oftentimes I'll even like virtually go to an appointment with a client. If a client, a lot of times clients have a lot of trauma from doctors or going into doctors due to concerns about weight gain or obesity or BMI or just seeing their weight depending on their diagnosis. So usually I'll prep them for that, go into a session with them, you know, and just kind of help advocate for the client and say, Hey, you know, she does have an eating disorder. I'm her coach. She also is a therapist. 
And, you know, we're really trying to navigate this. And right now we want to be doing blind weights. Please do not put the weight on the chart where she can see it. And usually the doctor, that's like the contact I'll have with the doctor. And the doctor usually works directly with the dietitian. And then the dietitian works with me. You know, doctors are so overworked and do not have this, as you know, do not have the time usually on top of insurance and all of that to be talking and collaborating with like a large team. An eating disorder specialized practitioner is usually incredibly open to working with coaches. Because again, once you have that experience, you know, oh my gosh, this client, my patient, they need so much support, right? And that's kind of rare. I mean, with other things, usually that much support can sometimes harm the client. Again, too many ideas, too many cooks in the kitchen, but with eating disorders, you cannot have too much support. Well, and I think one of the things that I liked what you said is the communication between the team members so that you're all on the same page, that there's no triangulation. And because, you know, People who are in recovery Mm -hmm. may not want to lose weight or Mm -hmm. or they don't want to because it's difficult or they Mm -hmm. are terrified of gaining weight. And so there's a lot of handholding, but you want to make sure that the messages and that they're doing this in a healthy way. And, yeah, you know, as a, and as a physician, and again, you know, I work with kids mostly mm-hmm. would see teenagers, you know, my job was making sure that their blood pressure was okay. And, you know, right. kind of tracking some of those vital signs and then working with the therapist and yeah. the dietitian. But, you know, I think you're right. It's not all just my job. You know, I have a role, but mm-hmm. I also found with having just kind of for mental health in general, having a team member, like in our office, we're fortunate enough to have social work right there, mm-hmm. that I don't have to do that all. And that, you know, there's some stuff that's really important for me to hand off. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's helpful for the client too, um, because they don't want to necessarily have a one a one person to go to for all the things because the eating disorder compartmentalizes things. It was so black and white. So it could be, they're not going to hear everything a doctor is saying if the doctor is talking about all the things, right? They can start to compartmentalize their recovery a little bit more. If they see their dietitian, they know they're going to talk about food. They know they're going to talk about weight. And then they see their therapist and they know they're going to talk about trauma and they see their doctor and they know they're going to get their vitals, their lab work. They're going to talk about risks of hypermetabolism and refeeding or just education about their bodies and what it's doing. And I feel like that can be really empowering for a client because then it's also setting boundaries and it's learning boundaries, but it's also being able to know what to expect within your treatment or else it can be really overwhelming, I think. Well, it sounds like they can prepare. You know, if I know that when I go to the dietitian, you know, I'm going to talk about food and am I getting at, you know, so I can prepare myself, but also, you know, that to your point about weighing and, you know, when we're seeing kids, you know, part of our job is tracking growth because if a child isn't growing well, that's concern. If they're gaining too much weight, you know, is there a medical condition or not? Mm -hmm. And, but I know particularly during puberty, And I see it more often in girls, but boys too, that whole bit about weight gain as a normal part of growth becomes so painful. And there's so much focus for us, especially, you know, I mean, we have to do it as a a measure for insurance is to record BMIs. And, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, Julia and I 
my daughter for listeners yeah. recorded. I mean, our first, my first recording was with her and talking about BMI and how, you know, difficult it can be going to a doctor and having them say, regardless of why you're there, you know, you really should lose weight. Right. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, and I'm sure this, you know, that you have experienced this is so helpful for parents to also just ask the doctor to not talk about that in front of the child. Because I think, again, the more research and findings we have, children are seeing, if you see things in black and white, because their frontal lobes aren't developed completely. So it's like they really see good, bad. And so they can't necessarily see that gray area that maybe the doctor is providing them, which again is like sometimes this triangulation that happens that is not intentional. I always tell my clients, you know, their eating disorder ears are on like, and like they put, you know, their eating disorder ears are on and I'll say something and I'll say, okay, how did you hear that? What are you hearing? And it's total opposite of what I've said. And so maybe it's, you know, consultation with the parents about things like that and not in front of the child. That's some things that I've worked with, with families. Yeah. I think that to your point about the consultation, you know, and I do think that, you know, eating foods that are nutritious for children is super important. But I think that, you know, there's so much in our culture about, you know, bad foods, junk foods, and, and there are a lot of you know, advertising commercials that are directed. I just saw a commercial for a cereal that now they're coating it with chocolate. You know, it's like, really, is that something that a kid needs to eat in the morning? I mean, right, right. you know, the food in itself maybe isn't evil, but you're thinking about this company Mm -hmm. is thinking about how can I sell this food? And I'm going to coat it in chocolate, even though maybe that's not what you needed. It's just kind of strange. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about kind of your curriculum and, and what you mm-hmm. focus on for health coaches, because it may be yeah. kind of a new a new concept to understand that kind of team member. Yeah, it is. Um, it's more up and coming for sure, you know, um, but it's definitely new. And basically, I market it as recovery coaches or body image coaches. And so... I started my training a couple of years back for only master's level clinicians. And I actually found that that was really hard because most master's level clinicians, you know, it's hard to put on two hats and switch your role. Um, So now I opened it up to anyone who is willing to be a helping professional as a recovery coach or body image coach on a team somewhere or an advocate or an ally to really understand eating disorders from an kind of like a multidimensional perspective. So it's a 14 module training curriculum. That's for each one module each week. And um, it's individual teaching as well as group. So there's people in the cohorts and I usually have like a max of six people. And we, one thing, it's a structured curriculum, but one thing I love about it is the first five modules are really focused on the trainee's experience within their own healing journey. Um, Whether they had an eating disorder or not, I feel that usually it's so important to heal some things that might not have been healed while you're going through your training. And also understanding red flags that they might have as they enter into this field and understanding how to maintain their self-care and their well-being while working with this high-risk population. You know, we do a lot of reframing thoughts. We cover personification of the ed. We have a reading list. 
I love reading Life Without Ed, Intuitive Eating, Health at Every Size. Um, we talk about diagnosis. We're never diagnosing a client, but I think it's so important to be aware of the varying diagnoses. We talk about comorbid diagnoses. Again, we're never diagnosing, but it's so important to be aware. And, you know, we talk about medical complications because sometimes as a coach, I'll recognize something in a client and say, hey, we need to make an appointment with your doctor. You know, for instance, hypermetabolism or POTS that can go along with eating disorders often, you know, PCOS, you know, there's lots of things where a client will start to describe something like, hmm, let's, let's go see your doctor about this. Because it's, again, it's not just healing body image. It's not just healing the food. It's not just, it's all of the things. And a coach can kind of piece those things together. I've even had, you know, clients who have have been purging for five years plus. And when you've been purging for that long, you really should be getting screened for cancer in your esophagus. So, you know, I've encouraged clients to go do that. Um, so we go over that in your the coaching curriculum. Again, we're not necessarily diagnosing, but being really aware of it. Health at every size, intuitive eating, intuitive movements, and just they walk away with skills and tools to use with their clients, worksheets, books, readings, as well as the paperwork to go along with, hey, a client is signing and saying, I agree. And I'm understanding that you are not my therapist and that this is this, they have a scope of care agreement to sign basically. Well, I think that may be reassuring to physicians that, Mm. you know, this isn't a group that is just completely rogue and, Mm -hmm. you know, that are not trained. I mean, it almost sounds like a peer recovery model Mm -hmm. that is used for, you know, substance use disorders where someone who has a recovering heroin, who has had a heroin addiction, goes into the emergency room, meets with somebody and helps facilitate them getting into recovery. So, and I think the other thing is, is that it sounds like you've created these boundaries. So people, as you, I think the term you use, staying in your lane, that you are, I am not treating mental illness. I am not making the diagnosis. I'm working with these other professionals to help support you and it's goal setting. It's kind of interesting having done Weight Watchers for like a million years and they use a coaching model, which is very much about how to not get triggered or to not eat certain things, how to like the tricks of how to, I mean, I remember one of them that I, at the time I was like, this is a really good idea. Like go into a restaurant and have them put a whole bunch of fruit in your drink so that you don't drink other things, which is not necessarily, I mean, it may make the, the, whatever you're drinking more flavorful. That's the the, intention behind it. That's probably unhelpful, right? Right, right. So, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, and of course, Mm -hmm. I think quit smoking. I mean, people Mm -hmm. use coaches for that. Yep. So I think that there is definitely a role for um, this professional, but also that they are supervised. I mean, you as a master's level clinician are supervising folks. Right. And so that again, they're not just operating on their own because they- you know, read some things. Exactly. And that is the misconception about coaches. And there are coaches out there that are kind of like the Instagram coach where it's like, what training do you have? Like, wait a minute. And this is like, it's, it's, it's a really intensive training curriculum because it's a high risk population where, you know, it's not just saying like, oh, I had an eating disorder so I can help you. It's, it's really understanding the risks and 
what to watch out for and the skills and tools, depending on their personality styles and looking out for personality disorders or attachment styles and saying, okay, this is how I'm going to set boundaries with this client so that they can thrive and feel safe. It's also trauma-informed care, which I think is really important because I've never met someone with an eating disorder who doesn't have trauma. We do a lot of like neural retraining as well. I'm like a, I'm a nerd for like neuroscience. I think it's so cool understanding how the brain works. And if we can, if I can help my trainees understand neural pathways and the amygdala hijacking and all of that, then I, they can help their clients understand why their therapist is telling them to color instead of use behaviors. I always joke, you know, like when I was in my recovery and my therapist was like, you know, go find a coloring book or paint your nails instead of using behaviors. I was like, what? Like, that is not the same thing. That is not going to feel the same. And so we can help clients understand the why behind it and the expectations of, hey, it's not going to feel the same as purging or restricting or binging. It's going to feel maybe one to 5% better and helping them build resilience in that. That can be, sometimes I see myself as like a resilience coach is helping clients sit in the moment. They message me through my HIPAA compliant app that we use. They message me. I'm having a really hard time. I need to do X, Y, Z. We sit in the moment. We allow ourselves to feel our feelings. We use our skills and we build resilience so that they then go to their therapy appointment and they talk about what caused that, you know, and they say, this is how I got through it with my coach, but let's talk about why this happened. Well, and I'm thinking like everyone should have a coach just to get yeah. through through difficult <laughs> things, whether it's eating or not. Right. Are there some studies out there that have looked at, you know, evidence base for health coaches and recovery mm-hmm. coaches? Very limited. There's so limited, as you know, there's so like small research on eating disorders and body image. There's so little money put into that. I'm actually building research on it now, my own research. It's hard because With eating disorders, there's a really small population that finds full recovery. Again, I think that's systemic issues. So I'm hoping that as we learn more and change the treatment protocol and add team members that are supervised and understand this, that we can, you know, increase that recovery rate. But right now there's very little research on it. Yeah. Sounds like pioneering a little bit. And I I think that that sounds like something and and maybe there are some other things out there looking at mm-hmm. that the model and how yes. it applies to maybe other conditions mm-hmm. um and how helpful that can be or right. you know, what what some of the questions or concerns are I, again i think mm-hmm. from a physician you know we tend to be kind of skeptical of and and want to see the science and want to see the research and make sure that it's safe but I think yeah. the the oversight and supervision from a trained clinician, I, I think certainly yeah. is reassuring to me. This isn't just, you know, someone got a good idea that I should just talk to somebody. Right. Uh, and be there, be their friend. I mean, it's it's more than that. It's it's more exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about you you mentioned a couple of resources, intuitive eating, health mm-hmm. at every size. And can you talk a little bit about what Health at Every Size and Intuitive Eating, what is that? Yeah. So Health at Every Size is, um, that is a research-based study and it's long-term research-based. It's a book, it's a website, it's all the things. Lindo Bacon is the founder and author behind it. 
And it's really, if you're, I really highly recommend any of the listeners to read the book. It's, it's really wonderful because the concept of health at every size sounds like I, every size is healthy. And that's not what, that's not what the book is saying, right? That's not what they are saying. Basically it's saying that if you can support yourself at within all pillars of health and the way I look at pillars of health are we have financial health, we have mental health, emotional health, nutritional health, physical health, social health, spiritual health. If we can support ourselves in all of those levels of health and balance out those pillars, then our body's going to find out where it wants to sit on the scale or in our, like where, how much we are going to weigh. And that is health at every size. Oftentimes this is really missed. People say, well, what about, you know, if you see a person in a bigger body, or if there's body positivity, the counter argument is like, what about health? And it's like, okay, well, if they are eating the way, what their body needs and they're eating intuitively and they're feeding their body based off of accurate hunger cues and eating a balanced meal, um, and they're not weight cycling and, you know, they're also have a healthy social life and spiritual health and whatever that means and financial health. That's where their body needs to be at that moment in life. Um, it talks about set points with health at every size and how that's majorly affected based off of weight cycling, which is way more dangerous than living in a bigger body. It's way more dangerous than being quote unquote medically obese because we're putting our body through so much stress when we're weight cycling, hence diet culture and the problem behind all of that. And I think physicians probably get stuck on, well, what about someone who's, you know, 350 or 400 pounds who has type 2 diabetes and hypertension? And, you know, does that mean that we don't do anything to help them? Right. What are your thoughts on that? Because yeah, I know well, that that comes up. 100%. And I absolutely, I appreciate, you know, that concern, especially coming from a clinician, right? When that's actually their concern. When it comes from someone who's just like randomly on the street, I'm like, why do you care about that? But when it comes from a doctor, it makes a lot of sense. And that tells me that their pillars of health are not balanced, right? That their physical health, nutritional health, maybe genetics, something is going on there that we have to look at. And so that would say that, you know, maybe they're not living a healthy life. Maybe their size has nothing to do with their cholesterol. It could be something else. And health at every size talks about that, where it's like, you know, we're often said that we have to lose a certain amount of weight for surgery. And that's actually because, you know, it takes more time basically to cut through the fat and the muscles and whatnot. And so it's like, what can we look at here? Is the client healthy or, you know, is there something else going on and how can we change and balance out the pillars of health? You know, maybe they need to be adding leafy greens, not taking out whatever else they're eating. And I'm thinking at some point for some people, weight loss may be part of what, what needs mm -hmm. to happen mm -hmm. in order for somebody's insulin resistance to improve, yeah. but it gets tricky and difficult. And I think it's easy to just focus on the weight and not the, weight. the whole other thing. And this sort of brings me to, I think, part of what I've kind of run across in working with kids. And that is that it's really not about food and it's yeah. about so much. And I know um, Vince Spalletti in the, in the 90s, late 90s, did the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was a clinician, he was an internist, and he was doing yeah. a study on obese 
people. So, and we're talking about folks that were at the high end of weight, you know, 400 pounds, and they were on these incredibly restrictive diets and could lose, you know, a hundred plus pounds and then they gained it back. And what he did that was so interesting, he took this really extensive history and then he found that for those folks, they had all these traumatic experiences and one in four of the women had had sexual abuse. And so he began to think maybe the problem isn't the, the weight. The problem is what happened to them. And the weight gain is actually the solution to their problem that almost works. So eating food or being obese Mm -hmm. is the part that is actually, I'm trying to heal that. It's not really, I mean, it's not really what the trauma was. It's not healing the Mm -mm. sexual abuse that happened when they were a child, but it's it's their attempt. And he talked a lot about substance use that, you know, the heroin use is the solution to the distress that almost works. But what doesn't almost work is the addiction and, and of course, all that other. And that just saying don't use drugs doesn't heal what happened. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. I see that a lot. Again, I've yet to meet anyone with an eating disorder who doesn't have trauma. And oftentimes clients have sexual trauma and it really majorly affects their body image. Um, it affects their relationship with their body and is their tactile relationship with their body. It also affects like I, I've, you know, it affects their central nervous system. Trauma affects your central nervous system, right? If you read the body keeps the score, it talks all about that. And if you're producing, you know, with trauma, if you're producing more cortisol, all those things, you're going to be at a much higher risk for all these other issues. Oftentimes people with eating disorders for, you know, for the medical complications or other, they also come to me with varying chronic illnesses. And I always wonder how much of this is due to trauma, you know, how much of this is due to the, the food and the relationship they have with food. And like Jenny Schaefer says, she says, it's all about the food and it's not about the food at all. Right. And it's just, it's so, it's the perfect way of describing it. Well, and I'm wondering if the conversation might be with folks like when they come in with concerns about, you know, hey, doctor, I want to lose weight is let's yeah. talk a little bit about what's going on. And, yes. you know, this may not be true for you, but for many people who struggle with weight, they also had difficult things happen when they were children. Wow, is that yeah. possible? You know, did any of those things happen to you? Because sometimes in trying to cope, food becomes something that we seek or is it smoking or is it alcohol use all those other things and rather than just focusing solely on let's just lose the weight and then everything's going to be better is let's talk about what happened to you yes oh my gosh amazing and then you know maybe these other things you know yes we need to make sure that your blood pressure is in a normal range Mm -hmm. and that but losing the weight isn't going to heal the trauma. Yes. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. I mean, gosh, I wish every single pediatrician and doctor could do that because it's so true. I mean, even people that are recovered, there's this eating disorder sneaks in later on in life and maybe they'll go to a doctor because a doctor is someone that they view as, you know, just, you know, they, they can trust, but they also view as someone who knows more about their body than they do. And I've known people that are in recovery or identify as recovered and will go in and almost self-sabotage by saying to the doctor, you know, well, what about my weight? 
And they're just kind of looking for the doctor to say, okay, here's ways in which we can lose weight. And if anything, it would be so validating if the doctor were like, what, where are you hoping will happen once you lose weight? Right? Like what's the motivation behind that? What's the intention? So I don't think weight loss is inherently bad. So we talked a little bit about weight loss and I think we can't finish this conversation without talking about diet culture because we are immersed in it. And I think for a lot of us, that actually might be part of the trauma is being totally confronted with every magazine. The cover is, you know, how to lose weight. And then, you know, there's keto and plant-based and Atkins and all these things where, you know, these, the idea of putting whole cream and butter in coffee, just, I don't know, it's just crazy. And then at the same time, there's these recipes for make the most luscious chocolate cake. So it's like, what are you supposed to do with that? Right? Right. It's so, con. it's so, it's, you have, all the diets contradict one another and all the information we get. And it's, it's, it's really just a money-making machine. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And I always say, if it worked, it'd be a $1 industry. I mean, like, it wouldn't be this successful because people would go on one diet and then it'd be fine, which is kind of what we were saying. It's, it's all about the food and it's not about the food at all. And I do think diet culture is so based in trauma. I, I really do think it is. It's someone saying we should be a certain way. I think diet culture is also based in racism. I think it's based in fat phobia. I think it's based in ableism. When we think of you know, when we're given an image, it's a thin white girl, white woman who is able-bodied and able to do all the things and successful. She's not mentally ill. And it's like, that's what we want to be. That's what we're told we can be if we just lose weight. And that's just not how it works. Well, and we forget sometimes that that girl in front of us might not be well. I mean, she exactly. might be doing, you know, purging and, and yes. or assuming that someone that's in a larger body, you know, we just don't know from looking at people what their experiences no are. And oftentimes when I work with clients in larger bodies, they're eating less than clients in smaller bodies. Right. It's, it's just complicated. And I always mm-hmm. worry a little bit too, when I'm talking with families about children's weight, because the families are often very concerned. Oftentimes the parent, particularly the mom, may be living in larger bodies. And I don't know when I'm talking to them, did they have an eating disorder? Have they struggled? What's their, you know, have they been dieting their whole lives? So I think that we kind of try and distill it down to this simple, like, just eat healthy and, you know, without understanding how complicated it is. And I think that's my biggest goal in talking about this is just to be careful about what we're saying and trying to have a, like a bigger picture about, you know, what body size, it's just not simply about your weight or your BMI. There's just a lot that goes into that. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's genetic, but, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. something happened to this person and them being obese provides them a sense of safety and security. Exactly. I mean, and so I, I, in closing, I guess what I wanted to ask you, if you were at a conference, Mm -hmm. a pediatric conference, what would you want to say to the audience? What would you want us to hear? Oh man, so many things. I want them to hear this interview. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say, listen, listen to your patients and your clients. 
because there's usually so much more going on than just the weight piece. They might have a confusing relationship with food. They might feel that they have to look a certain way and not having conversations about weight or nutrition in front of the child. I just don't think that children are ready for that. I mean, there's little research, but it's saying that like, you know, even talking about the food pyramid before the age of 13 can be really confusing for kids because again, that black and white thinking. So it's like, if we can just look at certain, be curious about foods and be curious about our bodies and celebrate our bodies during that growing period, there's going to be a lot less trauma. And I don't think it doesn't mean that we don't talk about, you know, about foods. I mean, it it is kind of a, you know, that we do can talk about that, but it's not about restricting foods. Um, Yeah. It's not putting them in categories necessarily. It's saying like, Ooh, this food really makes me feel good. And it makes, helps me grow. And, you know, this food is good for, you know, feels really nice after, you know, I have something savory and, you know, it's sometimes I eat too much of it. It really hurts my stomach or, you know, like kind of having that unbiased, view about food that I think really like is a catalyst for curiosity, healthy curiosity in kids. Well, and I think the good food, bad food often gets tied up in shame. That means if I ate the bad food, then therefore am I bad because I caved? And I, I remember telling parents things like, well, you know, if you have to have the chips and the pop, then maybe you need to, you know, lock them up somewhere. Or, I, you know, I hear, and I've said this myself in, in my past, and I try and be cognizant of it, is the idea yeah. that somehow if I have cookies in the house, I'm going to have no control. There mm-hmm. is no way that I can possibly control myself. Mm-hmm. And I think in working myself with a coach was that if I can have it when I want it, yes. maybe I don't want it all the time. And that right. I didn't eat the whole package of cookies because I knew yes. I could. But yes. that didn't really make me feel good. And so maybe I just wanted one. Yes. Was that was I bad in doing that? You know? Right. right. I know one thing that, you know, another thing I think pediatricians would, you know, it's like, instead of saying good and bad, I always just say, is it helpful or unhelpful? Is mm-hmm. it helpful towards your recovery or your journey as a human? You know, is it helpful to your tummy? Does it feel good or is it unhelpful? And I think looking at it that way can be really helpful really helpful for, for children. Well, and I do think so much of our culture, I mean, I think parents get bombarded with all these food choices that, Mm -hmm. you know, really are not designed to be helpful. I mean, I think about highly sugared beverages. There's so much commercialization of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're in a food desert, sometimes those highly processed, highly sugared foods are what's available. And yeah, I've had families that, and they're, they can be cheap. And I've yeah. had families that are like, I can't afford to, and don't even have access to fruits and right. vegetables. Because it's so just monopolized. I just need to feed my kids or myself. And yeah, it just gets complicated. So oh, yeah, yeah. It is. but I, I do think one of the things is for us to just sort of take a pause and think mm-hmm. about if nothing else from listening is maybe just think about some of your attitudes, preconceived notions about what it means for somebody to be living in a larger body. Yes, absolutely. And a thinner body. I mean, I think sometimes really um, people that live in thin bodies, there's often like, oh, she must be anorexia. 
Right. There's a lot of judgment based off of people's size and bodies. And really our bodies are just the vessel that holds us and holds our soul and allows us to live. Even things for people that live in, you know, maybe a thinner or what people idealize, you know, to have other people say to them, I hate you. I oh, hate right. how you look, or you're making me feel bad because you are in your body. You yes. know, so that, that shaming is not just about, you know, larger bodies. It's everybody, oh, you know? Yeah. Actually, Julia, your daughter said, said it best where, you know, no body comments are okay. It's not okay. It's, it's a boundary that's crossed. And fat shaming is inherently different than skinny shaming because Skinny shaming usually, it's shame, it's not okay, but skinny shaming usually comes from envy due to diet culture and it's projection of, I want that, I want to be that, I can't have that. And fat shaming usually comes from disgust. Mm, yeah. That's and I thought that that was so perfectly sad. Yeah. And, and again, I, you know, I feel for, you know, the women that maybe, and we're talking mostly about women, but that look, live in those yes. perfect bodies. We really don't know what their own, are they comfortable with that? Is it good enough for that? You know, we just make assumptions that, oh, you're in this body. Everything must be perfect for you. Right. And, you know, they have their own struggles with stuff. And we just shouldn't make assumptions about people based on how they look, period. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jane. I really appreciate it. And um, I think it's great that you're doing this work and thinking so much about how to make people comfortable in their bodies and and just trying to take care of, you know, the gift we're given. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I could keep talking all day. So thank you. (laughs) Well, take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. A huge thank you to Jane for spending some time with us today and sharing a different perspective of care, that of a health coach. And, you know, I think it really takes a village to help someone recover from an eating disorder. And hopefully, as pediatricians and pediatric clinicians, we can begin prevention so that we are somehow conveying to kids that your body is okay and that we need to eat when we're hungry and we need to move our bodies and get away from diet culture. It's just not helpful. So here are my takeaways. Number one, there is a common misconception that, quote, normal looking individuals don't have disordered eating. We have so many misconceptions about what body shape implies. We are a culture of fat shaming, skinny shaming, trying to reach an unattainable ideal, and we really don't even know what those folks' experiences are inside whatever body they have. Jane used a lovely phrase that the body is a vessel for the soul. Number two, team-based care for individuals offers a safety net, especially for those who are at high risk of medical complications and comorbidities. This team would include a physician and ideally one trained in eating disorders, a therapist, a nutritionist, and a health coach. Number three, a health coach provides support with goal-setting. They do not diagnose and they do not treat mental health conditions or trauma. Jane, as a master's level clinician, supervises and trains recovery coaches, and they continually check in with her and work within their scope of training. Number four, I think doctors worry that if a patient is in a larger body that stays that way, there is always a health problem and that it is our job to continuously encourage weight loss. 
I think patients have experienced even going in for, for example, a sinus infection and being told that they're too heavy, as if they didn't know that they weren't meeting some perfect standard. Jane reframes weight in the context of pillars of health. Is the individual financially, mentally, emotionally, physically, and socially healthy and functional? So if someone is in any size body and has problems with hypertension or blood sugars, then there's a medical concern that needs to be addressed. If those things don't exist, maybe the problem is our perception of weight. Number five, Health at Every Size is a book about healthy living and one designed to support to support you as you shift your focus from hating yourself and fighting your body, learning to appreciate yourself, your body, and your life, described by the author. If diets work, we would all be, quote, normal-sized. While in the short run, diets lead to weight loss, over time the weight comes back and this yo-yo cycling continues and can create a whole problem with set point. What we might want to consider is that talking about intuitive eating and intuitive movement and body cues is more helpful regardless of size. Number six, let's talk about trauma and weight. So the ACEs study in 1999 that was a huge study found that one in four women who were in the obese range had been sexually abused. It wasn't about the food, not really. Number seven, a cognitive trauma-informed reframe. What happened to you versus lose weight? Number eight, we are working with parents and caregivers who may have their own ED history. Our words matter when we're talking about their children's BMI and using language like obese. Number nine, how can we help kids and families learn to not succumb to diet culture? And this is a big challenge. And a couple of suggestions were made. These include, A, talk with parents about weight concerns privately instead of in front of kids. B, talk about helpful foods versus good and bad foods. C, help kids think about listening to hunger cues. Let's learn about hunger and satiety when we buy, plan, and prepare meals. D, explore food family choices. Are there financial concerns that influence the food purchases? Are there food deserts in their neighborhoods? E, understand the impact of media and the multi-billion dollar diet industry. Again, if dieting worked, there wouldn't be an ongoing industry. So many people that diet gain the weight back and it just is this perpetual yo-yo cycle. So I hope that there were some takeaways here for you and that you're learning some other ways of thinking about body size in the context of these eating disorder and body perspective related podcasts in this series. So thank you again for your time. And I hope to have you join me again next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.